Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. Today is, of course, St. Patrick's Day, so to celebrate that, we're going to do an entire episode about the French. Because it turns out we've done surprisingly few articles about Ireland in the past. We'll try to remedy that in the future, but in the meantime, we do hope you enjoy this episode. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. Have you guys ever wondered why Napoleon's portraits usually show him with that one hand inside his shirt? Oh, I've never thought about it, but I definitely know what you're talking about. Well, History Extra has an article noting that most of the most famous portraits of Napoleon show that one hand tucked out of sight. But this was really just an artistic treatment for portraiture that was just kind of hot at the time. Oh, so like lots of people did it. Yeah, it was more to do with portraiture in the 18th and 19th centuries. So concealing a hand in the shirt became a common pose as paintings became more of a symbol of statesmanlike nobility and restraint. Yeah, I'm a rich dude. I don't have to show you my fingers. Yeah. <laughs> According to a 1737 book on etiquette, it symbolized manly boldness tempered with modesty. I've heard of that word. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like a faint memory of bygone eras. And it does go back because even as far as ancient Greece, the eminent orator Ascanes declared that speaking with an arm inside one's cloak was a sign of modesty. So happy to huh. take some inspiration from, you know, all this antiquity. A lot of men and even some women started sporting the one-handed pose when they were sitting for their portraits. And it wasn't just Napoleon. It included George Washington, Mozart. And it is worth noting that hands are really hard to paint well. So this also <laughs> may have been like... You know, a technique that painters were really eager to come into fashion right, because right. maybe you wouldn't have as much pressure for being less talented. You know, hiding a hand in portraits became so ubiquitous, in fact, that its symbolism started to just disappear until Napoleon came along and really kind of to use the pun in the article, grasped it with both hands. Ah. <laughs> yeah, so he understood that optics were important more than other people did. And so, for example, when he was coronated in 1804, he crowned himself to signify that he had risen through his own merit, which I'm sorry mm -hmm. is a total boss move, I gotta say. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's not the Pope doing it. It's not my mom doing it. I'm doing it. And yeah. the interesting thing is he didn't choose this pose. In fact, he didn't even sit for what is now the most famous depiction of him. And it's huh. Jacques-Louis David's 1812 painting of Napoleon in his study. But apparently, once he saw the painting that was done of him that he didn't even sit for, Napoleon reportedly declared, you have understood me, my dear David. And the hand and shirt <laughs> became ever more associated with him. He's like, well, they painted me doing this in the picture, so now I have to do it all the time. This is just <laughs> how I have to stand now. Exactly. Like, if you're a pop star and you have a stylist and they dress you in clothes you never would have chosen for yourself, but now it's your brand. Sorry. Yeah. Better get those endorsement deals. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, this one comes from The Guardian. It's called French Officials Perplexed by Gold Bars and Coins Found Stashed in Old House. Oh. Hmm. 
This happened in the small mountain town of Morez in eastern France, which apparently has a, quote, glorious past as a historic manufacturing center for clocks and lenses. And it's possible there's a little bit of a rivalry showing here because the Jura region, where Morez is, is right on the border with Switzerland, which is kind of more traditionally associated with clockmaking, I think. Either way, the town has significantly dwindled over the last few decades as manufacturing has become more automated and moved to less remote locations. So their population has shrunk so much that the local government has started buying up old and abandoned properties and trying to renovate them in order to attract young families back to the city center. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened in this case. An old three-story house in the middle of town had been lived in by four brothers and sisters, none of whom ever had any children. And when the last one died just recently in his 90s, the inheritance went to some distant cousin who didn't have any use for a rundown piece of property in another city. (laughs) Worse than that, the four siblings had apparently been hoarders to some degree, And this cousin just didn't want to be saddled with all the work of clearing out the house before trying to sell it. So he struck a deal with the mayor of Moretz to sell the house and all its contents to the government as is for 130,000 euros or about $156,000. And I actually went down a brief rabbit hole looking at property listings in Moretz. And it's a beautiful location. They're really nice little houses. And from what I can tell, the price the government paid was anywhere from half to a third of what a nice and clean property would be going for right now. So they got a good deal. Hmm. And I think the mayor herself must have had some suspicions because she, her staff, and the head of a local museum went in personally to comb the house for historical artifacts or other things the town might be interested in. And right there on a shelf behind some other knickknacks, were three jars filled with gold bars and coins. They later found a safe in the back of the house that contained another stash of several hundred gold coins, which I guess maybe that safe was full and they were too cheap to buy another one, or maybe the siblings just forgot the combination in their old age and figured it was better (laughs) to just leave the rest of their gold out in the living room. They don't explain at all where any of this came from or what they, yeah, they're just like, hey, we found a bunch of gold. Good for us. But (laughs) either way, the grand total was worth about $780,000. And officials say, you know, again, they have no idea where it came from, but the family was known to be involved in the clock and glasses industry going back several generations. They did notify the relative who had sold them the house, but it was purely out of courtesy. They weren't given the gold back. And the mayor said that he was stoical about the find. Apparently, the man had heard family rumors about a stash of gold, but assumed it was long gone. So, you know, (laughs) he got his 130,000 from the sale of the house. He's like, well, I guess that's more than I would have had. But sure. Yeah. There was nearly a million dollars of gold sitting in that house if he had just taken the trip to go (laughs) look for it. Mm -hmm. The money represents about 10 percent of the city's overall budget. So it'll be used for a special project that has yet to be decided. The mayor said, quote, I can't say it has turned us into the Las Vegas of the Jura, but it has made us smile. And, you know, (laughs) it's a nice story. It's very cute. I'm sitting there reading this thinking, going like, yeah, that's Nazi gold, man. Come on. Like, you're right next to Switzerland. Like, there's no way other people wouldn't have known in the town that they're collecting this gold. You know, you're making your money with your clock business, but then you have to go exchange it for gold and stick it in a jar on your shelf. I feel like (laughs) they would have known. I can't imagine being the owner there and just thinking like, ah, that's a whole house. I'll just sell it. I won't even look. Maybe I'm just more greedy than the average however old they (laughs) were. But like, yeah, yeah, not even take a look. I mean, it sounds like they really didn't even have to try hard at all. They were like just walking through and they noticed glinting behind one of the shelves. Like, (laughs) oh, million dollars worth of gold. But (laughs) 
anyways. Yeah. yeah. No, I would go check it out. I mean, for the haunting aspect, if nothing else. But again, like yeah. if you're thinking like, oh, you know, your great aunt Rosemary dies in Lubbock, Texas. Are you really going to drive all the way out there to look at her house full of doilies and stuff? Yeah. I mean, if they're my doilies now, <laughs> yes. Who knows what those doilies could fetch on eBay, yeah. you know? That's true. That's true. You always got to check. That's right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. link. Uh, this next link comes from the BBC. Why the French love to complain. Oh, <laughs> I guess there's a reason. Like, it's not just. <laughs> well, because this is kind of a, a cultural lens. And again, this comes from the BBC. I have been long entertained with sort of the British editorialization mm-hmm. of French culture. You know, it's it's something that has been kind yeah, of. Yeah, speaking of rivalries that go way back. That's <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. But this is kind of like a measured approach at looking at how these conversational ticks of a complaining culture are unique in France. And they're basically a couple of words to complain in France. Like they have the word plaindre, which is used for regular old complaining. <laughs> there's porte plant, which is for complaining officially. But then there's raleigh, which is complaining just for the fun of it. Mm-hmm. And there are kind of guardrails about how to do this correctly, right? It's one of these sort of subtle nuances where a French person could probably tell how French you are or are not based on how and when and where you complain. Wow. So you might râler about doing something, but still do it begrudgingly. Mm-hmm. Whereas porte plant implies you will not be doing something and someone will be hearing about right. why. <laughs> Sounds like I'm putting my foot down. <laughs> exactly. Versus just grumble, grumble, grouch, grumble. <laughs> <laughs> So in France, a complaint is considered an appropriate and frequent conversation starter among strangers, right? You could be talking about a (laughs) restaurant by focusing on the poor service during an otherwise great meal, or you could highlight the fact that east-facing windows in your new flat means, oh, now you have to buy curtains. But (laughs) why a Canadian journalist and co-author of The Bonjour Effect, Julie Barlow, explained, When you're saying something negative to Americans, it sounds like you're closing the conversation. But Mm -hmm. in France, these kinds of comments are perceived as a way to invite other people's opinions. Uh, North Americans in particular are not as comfortable with confrontation or criticism as the French are. So Raleigh then comes across as something that's more intelligent than being too starry-eyed and optimistic about things. In other words, it's sort of a sign and invitation for an intellectual discourse or duel to kind of flex your smarts. <laughs> like, I've picked out all the problems in this common thing. <laughs> right. Basically, I can see past the artifice and the glitz uh-huh. to look at things as they really are. Do you share this position as well, which can establish a kind of bond of intimacy among strangers? Mm-hmm. Anna Poliani, who's a Franco-American Hungarian writer, and she's head of the creative writing department at the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking, she posits that this distinction may stem from a core fear shared by many Americans, which is being perceived as a loser. And she notes, there's no word for that in France. In order to be a loser, the world around you needs to think of things in terms of winning. And that's not necessarily how people see social interactions in France. Because in France, the conversations could instead be likened to duels and the opening punch may be a complaint, which is something that makes people seem critical and like they're thinking and not naive. Right. As opposed to like in America, if you're basically saying like, oh, my windows face east, they're like, oh, well, you obviously aren't successful at your job and didn't make enough money and you haven't managed to be truly successful if your house sucks. Right. Or can you even (laughs) fix this problem if you can't 
fix it. Something's wrong with you because American can do individualism attitude. Every problem has a solution. That's right. right. <laughs> and so this uh, head of creative writing, Poliani, she experienced this firsthand when she moved from France, where she was raised, to Iowa. And she noticed when she moved there, people often kept themselves from negative speech as long as they could, only unleashing a barrage of complaints when it had built up far beyond what they could stand. So <laughs> it wasn't complaining the way that the French knew it. It was venting. Mm -hmm. It felt like people aren't giving themselves permission to complain in a way that actually builds intimacy. They were just sort of not doing it until it was impossible not to, which is kind of why we get these like geysers of eruptions. Right. Or but then it makes everybody around you feel bad because we're living in this culture where complaining is negative. It makes me feel bad when I listen to somebody complaining about something. And For so, sure. Yeah. And the article also notes that complaining is not always positive, right? If you complain too often, you get caught in a spiral and it can actually rewire your brain to always focus on the negative. But the difference in for French râleurs, and they may avoid this unfortunate side effect in part because they rarely complain about their own lives and rather about external issues. Mm -hmm. So according to a poll on the practice of <laughs> complaining, 48% of French people surveyed said the thing they complained most was the government. Well, that makes so, sense. I can, I can get behind that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's plenty to complain about, right? right? So even, you know, in a recent article in Politico that the French opinion of President Emmanuel Macron's handling of the pandemic was overwhelmingly negative. Mm. But personal issues are really low on the list of things that the French choose to rail about. 23% complain when people don't call them back. 33% <laughs> complain when they can't find their keys or their phone. And only 12% complain about issues linked to their children, which is like a super personal thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so the takeaway here is that Perhaps the French are optimistic and positive about themselves and their lives, but they tend to be really hard on their country. So don't go to a party and praise France because people are going to laugh at you. <laughs> <laughs> They're thinking, you know, the fact that the French focus on issues that are not personal and not related to themselves may indeed be healthier. A 2013 study in biological psychiatry found that attempts to regulate negative emotions could be linked with increased risk of cardiovascular disease, <laughs> while a 2011 study from UT Austin found that bottling up negative emotions can make people more aggressive. And so the idea here is that, you know, you're not complaining because you actually want to change anything. It's kind of a cultural and conversational tick. And, you know, Americans, we have these conversational ticks like asking how someone is without really caring to know. Right. You know, you're checking out in the grocery store. You don't really care. No. You really want to get into a <laughs> life story. Don't unload on me. Yeah. No, not at all. <laughs> One study conducted at the University of Oklahoma showed that complaining can have a positive impact on connectivity. And research also shows it can be a useful tool for bonding. I mean, we all know trauma bonding is a thing, but maybe it doesn't have to take a trauma to get us to bond. Maybe we just need to complain about things that are beyond our control, let off a little bit of that steam and get to know someone in the process. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure I could get over my inherent, but that's me being non-confrontational. I think I'm I'm exactly what you're describing. I don't want to yeah. have that negative conversation at all. I want to yeah. hear about yeah. happy parts. Well, and, and part of what they're pointing out is that for the French, if somebody's complaining, there's some authenticity there, right? Mm -hmm. Because when someone's complaining, they're basically being vulnerable 
and in the French, at least, are reassured by that authenticity. Right, right. Which makes sense. You know, I think if you could completely shift your perspective, I could see how it could be good <laughs> in that perspective. I just don't know that I have the personal strength no. to uh, become... And you may not need to shift it. You may just need to expand your spectrum to allow or account for the possibility that that could be a thing. Right. Just don't let it bottle up. Focus on the external things so that you're not locking yourself into a loop of my life sucks and I can't do anything. But we got plenty to complain about, y'all. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, and if it means I can't be French, that's okay. I'm all right with that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you should write for the BBC, perhaps. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Next link. Next link. So this article comes to us from HistoryExtra.com, and it is called Eustace the Monk, One of Medieval Europe's Unholiest Holy Men. <laughs> I like where this is going. Oh, yeah. So this one's a little bit longer, but it's also very lurid and very entertaining. Oh, good. Yeah. So... 800 years ago, uh, around 1217, one of the most hated men in England met a grisly end at the Battle of Sandwich, which was fought off the Kent coast on August 24th between the English and French navies. Eustace the monk was on the deck of his ship, vigorously swinging an oar around him as he tried to fend off his English enemies. Wow. Yeah, a contemporary writer described how he knocked down a good number. Some had their arms broken, others their heads smashed in, (laughs) another had his collarbone shattered. But Eustace's luck was about to run out. Soon he was overwhelmed by his foes, and after attempting to escape, he was dragged on deck and decapitated. (laughs) And after that, his severed head was fixed on a spear and paraded around the southern ports of England, not just one town, but like all the ports, to reassure their residents that this fearsome pirate was finally dead. And uh, the people celebrated his bloody demise long and lustily. Wow. <laughs> like, he sounds more like an MMA fighter than a monk. Like, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think one of those M stands for, Jennifer? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Very good I point. I am ready. I- <laughs> monk martial arts absolutely needs to become a thing, you guys. I'd watch Heck it. Yeah. <laughs> so, how had a former Benedictine monk become reviled for his lust for loot and violence? And what was a man who had once dedicated his life to the service of God doing, throwing his weight behind a French invasion of England? Well, Eustace was born around 1170, and Mm. though Eustace started his early life as a knight, the call of the sea proved really strong, and he quickly mastered the skills of seamanship through extensive travels. According to The Romance of Eustace the Monk, which is a poem penned by an anonymous author who enthusiastically embellished fact with fiction, uh, (laughs) Eustace quickly turned up at the Castilian city of Toledo, which was a notorious center of black magic, where, according to this anonymous author, we're told that he learned the dark arts of necromancy in a cave. Can we assume that the anonymous author is Eustace himself? Like, that seems pretty clear. (laughs) (laughs) I, I wonder when he would have had time to write it in the middle of his very mm. exciting and notorious life, but I like that. That's going in my <laughs> head now forever. So for the chroniclers, one of whom may have been Eustace himself, it was as if the devil himself had become Eustace's mentor. And then something completely unexpected happened. He became a monk. (laughs) The authors are not sure why Eustace chose to join the Benedictines at the Monastery of St. Samer near Boulogne. But one thing is for sure, 
if anyone would have been bad at the reflective life of being a monk, it was Eustace. Uh, so, <laughs> he probably just wanted a cover story. It was yeah. witness protection. He was hiding <laughs> from somebody and he had to get underground. So the thing is that this all happened before his invasion of England. So right. like this was early on after being a knight. You know, maybe this was his master plan all along. He was like, this is my <laughs> long con. But so no sooner had he joined the monastery than we're told that he was performing many devilish acts. He encouraged the brothers to eat when they should have been fasting, <gasps> curse when Ooh. they should have been reciting the office, and he urged them to fart in the cloister. Oh, no! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't long before he left, unsurprisingly, or more probably was ejected from the Benedictines, mm -hmm. but from that moment on, his epithet was sealed, and he would always be known as Eustace the Monk. <laughs> Next, he landed a job as a seneschal to the powerful Count of Boulogne, Renaud de Martin, and a seneschal is sort of an administrative officer. Hmm. But it does seem that he was soon up to his old tricks again as he was accused of financial impropriety. And I love how this entire story is like summed up in two sentences. Like there's so much more to get into that we can't even focus on that. Uh, so fearing prison, Eustace fled and began a new career, this time as a bandit. And the legend really takes off here where he and his men engage in a series of outrageous escapades, robbery, lightning raids, dramatic escapes, as they pursued the former monk's vendetta against the Count. Wait, and was this like part of the Robin Hood mythology at all? I mean, I know that we cast these, you know, robbers and brigands in a good light, but this is starting to feel a little Friar Tuck to me. Yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question. I mean, literally the next part of this story talks about how much of a Robin Hood element there is to these tales. Hmm. Huh. Um, at one point in the romance, he takes on the garb of a leper with a bell to trick Count Renaud into giving him money as charity. And we're told that he bound up one of his legs to play the part of a one-legged beggar, again deceiving the Count into <laughs> handing money over a second time before promptly jumping onto one of the Count's horses and riding off with his crutch just hanging at the side. <laughs> Wait, this is the same Count that he was a seneschal for earlier? Yes. So he's he's like disguising himself and getting away with it twice after yeah. the guy fired him? Yeah, he really does not like this count. He yeah. hates this count. <laughs> <laughs> On another occasion, Eustace dressed up as a woman and approached one of the count's young knights, and he said, let me get on this horse and I will give you a... Well, I'll give you four hints. The first letter is F and the next three are asterisks. And <laughs> the knight is keen to pay for this indecent proposal, so Eustace entices him further, declaring, I will teach you how to use your bum. And... <laughs> As the man lifts Eustace's leg, Eustace, quote, let out a fart, unquote. <laughs> and the story ends with Eustace stealing the knight's horse, of course. So, yeah, see, all of this is... happened in the animated Disney version of Robin Hood. The little fox dude dressed up as a poor beggar. He dressed up as a lady. Like, I, this guy is Robin Hood as far as I'm concerned. Holy crap, you're right. I totally forgot about those specific disguises. Wow. I don't remember the farts, but No, yes. I don't think that was in the Disney version. <laughs> yeah. So there is a dark side to these humorous tales, though. When Eustace captures five of the Count's men-at-arms, he cuts off the feet of four of them Ooh. and tells the fifth to convey a message to the Count. Uh, what is even darker is that Eustace seizes one of the court's spies, who is a young boy, and forces him to hang himself without even the opportunity to make a confession. Oh, like that's the worst part about it, that he didn't get to confess before he died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, the whole thing was pretty bad. Right. So <laughs> Eustace's cunning and cruelty had earned him quite a reputation in the environs of Boulogne, and soon he'd be making waves on the other side of the English Channel, too. Because by early 1206, he had actually started working for King John of England. Eustace had picked an opportune moment to ally himself with the English king, for John was in the middle of a bitter struggle to wrest the Duchy of Normandy back from the French. John recognized Eustace's maritime ability and gave him command of 30 galleys. Like, this guy went from being a forest bandit to now Uh, commanding uh, a ship, like 30 ships. Like 30 ships, yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't long before Eustace was using these vessels to devastating effect. His force of English, Flemish, and French sailors seized Sark, which is one of the Channel Islands, and set up a pirate base from where they launched a series of raids against the French seaports. Oof. And Eustace's pirates were doing a lot of this. They were terrorizing Mm -hmm. ships all over the channel of all nations, and that also included English ships as well. So Mm -hmm. he earned himself a notorious reputation in the ports and towns of England's south coast, so much so that if he wanted to land in England to conduct business or to visit his wife and daughter, which he got sometime along the way. Did technically have, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He first had to literally gain a safe conduct pass to do so. Sometime between 1212 and 1214, he and John fell out. And there's a bunch of reasons why the relationship hit the rocks. Uh, Money was possibly one factor. The chronicler known as the Anonymous of Bethune relates that when Eustace failed to repay a debt of 20 marks to John, he and his wife were imprisoned. And according to the romance, the king had Eustace's daughter, at the time John's hostage, burned, disfigured, and killed. Kind of rough. Yeah, but John's perennial mistrust of those who he deemed to have grown too powerful might have also contributed to that. Mm. But the principal bone of contention between the king and monk were probably Eustace's old enemy, Count Renaud of Boulogne. That's Mm. right, that same old guy from before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh my gosh. In 1212, the count decided to switch sides in the Anglo-French War and throw his support behind John. And John apparently welcomed him with open arms because Renaud's lands were a huge boon to the king and those assets were well worth just putting Eustace out for. Whatever the reason, by early 1215, the ever-opportunistic Eustace had switched sides in the war and presented himself to the French court. The romance actually reports the first meeting between the two men. Philip is reportedly saying, You are not big, but small, yet you are so brave and bold. You know a great deal about guile and cunning and do not need a cat's grease to help you. (laughs) I'm going to remember that one. (laughs) Yeah. Eustace was appointed Philip's admiral for the channel and now with the war against England entering a dramatic new phase, embarked upon the most intense and spectacular military chapter of his career. In May 1216, Prince Louis invaded England, quickly seizing half the country and receiving the homage of up to two-thirds of England's barons. And I actually had no idea that this much of England was conquered by the French way back when. Yeah. So that was pretty interesting. Eustace played a major role in this invasion, ferrying troops and supplies across the Channel. In spring of 1217, he proved his worth once more by dramatically breaking through an English blockade of the coastal town of Rye and rescuing Louis, who was trapped there. Uh, (laughs) Guys had a lot going on. Yeah, epic. Unfortunately, a few months later, Louis needed Eustace's help once again because he suffered a big defeat at the Battle of Lincoln in May 1217, and the French prince found himself holed up in London, desperately needing the monk to provide the supplies and reinforcements he required to continue waging his campaign. 
Eustace set sail for England in August, but on the 24th, his fleet was intercepted and annihilated by the English at Sandwich, which was a defeat that would ultimately force Louis to return to France with his tail between his legs. And according to the chronicler Roger of Wendover, when Eustace faced his end on the deck of his flagship, the last words he heard were, Never again in this world, wicked traitor, shall you deceive anyone with your false promises. <laughs> Although the romance focuses on his escapades as an outlaw, it was really in his role as a pirate and an admiral that Eustace made his most telling impact on 13th century Europe. It certainly was not in his role as a monk. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty amazing that that moniker stuck the whole time. I mean, I guess probably it was partly because everybody thought it was as funny as, as we do, just to be like, oh, yeah, Eustace the monk. He's this brutal yeah. fighter who's on the <laughs> sea all the time. I, I can imagine Eustace the dread monk. That's pretty sick. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dread monk Eustace. I'd be on board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, The Guardian reports there is a French woman who has been spending the past three years trying to prove she is not dead. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm assuming in like a bureaucratic sense, like she's walking around and uh, talking. Yes. It seems like it ought to be pretty obvious. You nailed it right there. Her name is Jean Pouchain, and she has not existed in the eyes of France officials since 2017. Um, wow. You can meet her in the flesh. She obviously appears very much alive and well. The picture they included in the Guardian article is very sweet. She's holding this enormous squishy cat in her arms <laughs> with this kind of plaintive look of, I'm still here. <laughs> but the problem is she was declared dead by a court due to a long-running legal dispute involving a former employee at her cleaning company. So mm. she went to see a lawyer who told her it was going to be quickly resolved, as she had been to her doctor who certified that she's very much alive. But because there had been a legal ruling, this was not sufficient. So her lawyer, Sylvain Cormier, was also astonished at her greatly exaggerated death. Quote, it's a crazy story. I couldn't believe it. I never thought that a judge would declare someone dead without a certificate. But the plaintiff claimed she was dead without providing any proof. And everyone believed her. Nobody checked. Wow. <laughs> so what happened was in 2004, an industrial tribunal had ordered Pushain to pay the former member of staff reportedly let go from her job when her firm lost a major contract. So downsizing, right? About mm. 14,000 euro in damages. As the case was against her company and not Pushain personally, the ruling was never enforced. So in 2009, the employee sued again, but the case was thrown out of court. So the employee informed the industrial tribunal her letters to her former boss were unanswered and she had died. So <laughs> based on that alone, she was scratched from the official records, which invalidated her identity card, driver's license, bank accounts, health insurance, and other official documents necessary to prove her existence. Wow. So as her lawyer sought this week to have her officially resurrected, Pushain accused the former employee of inventing her demise in an attempt to win damages from her heirs. The employee's lawyer counter-argued that Pushain was the author of her own demise and had played <laughs> dead to avoid paying the damages, accusations that she has obviously denied. Quote, uh -huh. I have no identity papers, no health insurance. I cannot prove to the banks that I am alive. I'm nothing. I wow. mean, she did owe the woman 14,000 euros, right? Like, that was the initial problem, was she wasn't paying the money she owed her, according to the court, at least. Honestly, the fact that this has dragged on for over a decade. Yeah, it's got to like, have cost more than that by now. 
just in Seriously, legal, utter legal and, costs. Or it, just in the headache of having to, you know, if she gets sick and has no health insurance, like, I can't even imagine how difficult this must be. Just cough it up. Go into, yeah. like, short-term debt if you need <laughs> yeah. to. But, like, get your life back. Holy smokes. Yeah. Send a strongly worded tablet. That'll get the job done. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, hot on the heels of talking about shifting boundaries, a little bit more of a lighthearted take, also from the <laughs> BBC, reports that a Belgian farmer accidentally moved the French border. Okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> How does one move a border? Well, to be fair, a Belgian farmer who was apparently annoyed by a large stone in his tractor's path moved it about seven and a half feet out of the way. Turns out that was a stone that had been marking the boundary between the two countries. <laughs> and it was established under the Treaty of Kortrijk, signed in 1820 after Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo five years earlier. The good news is, instead of causing international uproar, the incident has been met with smiles on both sides of the border. Quote, I was happy my town was bigger, said the mayor of the Belgian village of Urkeline. But the mayor of Boussigny-sur-Roc did not agree. <laughs> the local Belgian authorities do plan to contact the farmer to ask him to return the stone to its original location, pretty please. And if that does not happen, the case could end up at the Belgian Foreign Ministry, which would have to summon a Franco-Belgian border commission which has what? actually been dormant since 1930. <laughs> yeah, why can't they just say the border is where it is? Why does it have to stay imbued in this rock? That's... You know, easy for us to say as this young, juvenile, upstart country, America. Yeah. But they did note that the farmer could face criminal charges if he fails what? to comply. Quote, if he shows goodwill, we will settle this issue amicably. I mean, to be <sighs> fair, all he's got to do is move a rock back seven and a half feet. Yeah, I mean, I'm just still mind boggled at the low techness of it. Like we have <laughs> GPS satellites that can tell you exactly down to the foot where right. something is on the planet. But no, we're relying on a rock that they stuck there in the 1820s. And it's like, no, there's nothing we can do. The rock yep. is the border. That's <laughs> it. Gotta update all Google Maps now. <laughs> <you know? laughs> all right. Well, that's going to wrap up this bonus episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. <laughs>